Welcome to the session, Big News in Small Fiber Neuropathies. Our faculty today is Dr. Charles Argoff. Dr. Argoff is a professor of neurology at the Albany Medical College. Please help me welcome Dr. Argoff. All right, so um, uh, how many of you take care of people with small fiber neuropathy? All of you. Crap. So what are you here for then? All right, well, 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 um, when the last time I did this particular presentation, um, there weren't, uh, there was not as much interest. We didn't learn more, and even more importantly, um, I'll share some information at the end, uh, which is pretty exciting. So um, th these are my disclosures. I sincerely hope that you are uh, not in any way of the opinion at the end of this. It's not my intent to think that in any way um, I'm biased. Um, but I do work with industry in, in various ways and developing protocols, things like that. So, Okay, so our, our, my objectives today with, together with you are to um, present information that allows everyone here at the end to describe a definition of small fiber neuropathy. Second, to explain um, how to make a diagnosis. That will be, I think, relatively simple um, if you want to confirm it. Third, list the range of medical conditions that are associated with small fiber neuropathy, polyneuropathy. And the fun part will be, um, we'll also be discussing current and emerging treatments of small fiber neuropathy. And that's where some of the, um, like, finally kind of epiphany moments are going to occur because um, um, there's really, really a great interest now in developing new treatments. So peripheral neuropathy in general affects many millions of people in the United States. Um, many... We, 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 from an, a neuro are there any neurologists in the audience besides me or here? Okay, so many neurologists like to um, um, take care or at least evaluate people with neuropathies and one of the most, the most common type of neuropathy that we mostly see are mixed neuropathies. So that's where both large and small fibers are um, involved. Um, but increasingly recognized has been the idea that small fibers, uh, which we'll get into in more detail, um, may be more specifically involved. And so um, I feel like I just talked about this earlier today um, um, in a variety of ways, uh, and that's possible. But keep in mind that small nerve fibers, we're talking about diameter, and we're also talking about whether or not those fibers types are heavily or weakly myelinated. And the more myelinated a fiber is, the faster it conducts electricity. And so your touch, when if you just touch your arm and you recognize that you're being touched, that's a very, that's a beta, those are A-beta fibers that are communicating that information. They're very fast um, and uh, heavily myelinated. Now, just um, uh, to, so we're on the same page, and I know that a lot of you raised your hand about knowing and, uh, and working with people with small fiber neuropathy, but what's neuropathic pain? Well, pain that is associated with, uh, as a direct consequence of a disease affecting the somatosensory system, or another way of looking at this is pain from the nerves, the peripheral nerves, spinal cord, or brain. So it's not a, 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 a injury to the bone, muscle, or a visceral organ. Um, just by show of hands, uh, which person is experiencing pain? The person on the left, the knee on the left, or the knee on the right? Knee on the right. Well, absolutely, we have no way of knowing that. And so I tricked you. Um, because we don't know if the... It's very possible, and this is really one of the points in talking about this, it's very possible that the person on the left, that knee on the left, is more painful. Because it's not only about the, the, gender, the, to the, the structure, it's about the wiring. And I think one of the most, um, illustri one of the most uh, uh, interesting aspects of recognizing how... Uh, common small fiber neuropathy is, um, and I'm going to show you some really, in, in, I think, very interesting new information, um, not because it's a, a, a study that I published, but because I think it uh, is really interesting, uh, but you'll be the judge of that. Um, but it, 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 it's almost like the data that we have, and this has nothing to do with small fiber neuropathy per se at this point, but you, know, have, you, you probably are aware that if you imaged this lumbar spine, lumbosacral spine of anyone over 55, let's say who is 55 years old, with or without low back pain, the likelihood of seeing, even in asymptomatic people, 
significant degenerative disc findings would be very high. Our backs, your spines wear out over time. And so just looking at the structure of a joint or body part doesn't tell you what's, how a person's feeling. And so that was the purpose here, is to really outline that we may see someone who, had, who, who has a knee looking like the knee on the left, and that person may be in more pain than the person on the right, not because of um, wearing out of cartilage or other structural changes, but for other reasons. So it gets really interesting because um, many people, uh, and it's getting silly in my practice these days because in the, even just several years ago, if we, we, would, we would think, we, we, we now think small fiber neuropathy in almost anyone who, ex, who comes to us um, with widespread pain. Years ago, we didn't think that way. Um, there are many rheumatologic disorders that are associated with widespread pain. Diabetes can be associated with widespread pain, but it also is the most common known cause of small fiber neuropathy. People can present with MS, lots of different, even fibromyalgia, right? Fibromyalgia is defined in part by chronic widespread pain. But what we can add to this list at this point are a couple of other syndromes, including widespread pain associated with um, uh, uh, syndromes like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Okay, you see people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? Do they have pain lots of times? Have you ever assessed them for small fiber neuropathy? No. Well, so two or three years ago, um, I was putting together a paper to send in um, because it occurred to us that maybe um, this phenotype of small fiber neuropathy it, it could, it could, uh, could explain uh, the widespread pain associated with um, um, uh, hypermobility syndrome or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And we must have had five patients who have consecutively biopsied who um, all had small fiber neuropathy changes. And boy, that, that helped, and that, that really helped the people uh, feel more comfortable that they, you know, you know um, these are people who were told, this, why should you, I don't understand why you're having pain from other people, or you're just drug seeking. So at least we started to understand a little bit about why they may be experiencing pain. And I was about to submit it for publication, and then two Italian groups beat me to it, which is okay. So um, instead, I did a, um, a blog on Medscape about this and summarized their findings as well. Um, but it's rather common in people with, L- with EDS who have pain. And I think that um, people who have EDS, who I've seen, um, um, there are actually many professional people who have EDS, um, um, who have commented that they've now included on the EDS website, or the EDS Society website, uh, information about small fiber neuropathy to help people from a patient-centered, patient education point of view, know that this can occur in them. Oops. Okay, so looking at this from another point of view, these are some of the more common neuropathic pain diagnoses, and the last one is small fiber neuropathy. Um, and I think that's what we're going to focus on uh, as we get moving forward. Um, when people come to see us with different neuropathies, if people, uh, small fiber neuropathy patients, generally tell, t- talk to us about burning pain, uh, uh, electrical shock-like pain. They may have abnormalities of pinprick sensation. Um, the most important take-home message here is that um, the way to diagnose small fiber neuropathy in this day and age is not only clinically, but to use diagnostic skin biopsy. So do you, those of you who see people with small fiber neuropathy, are you doing skin biopsies? No? So, so are they coming to you from, how, how do you know they have small fiber neuropathy? Are they being diagnosed by somebody else and then referred to you? Oh, no, all right. So I happen to do both, so I do both. <laughs> Um, but um, they're, they're the, the standard, the, the, way, the, the, the most precise way of now measuring uh, or making the diagnosis of, of small fiber neuropathy is by sending a skin biopsy sample, which we'll get into more detail, to a specialized laboratory that can assess 
for intraepidermal nerve fiber densities. And there are standards now, there are known controls, but the best labs that are available right now can test, can assess your skin, the skin from almost any part of the body, upper extremity or lower extremity. In my experience, it doesn't matter where you biopsy it from because the, the, the findings may be um, in, both, in, in any extremity that you, you, um, you, you biopsy. Um, and so I, don't, I, I usually do lower extremity biopsies. Um, but it takes about five to seven business days for most laboratories to get the answer, and that's really the way to go. What would you do if, if, someone's, if someone um, has, you suspect them having a neuropathic pain disorder or small fiber neuropathy, and what would you expect the findings of the EMG and nerve conduction test to be? Right, because that's a large fiber test. And unfortunately, and hopefully it's less common in the real world, but not many years ago, people would be told there's nothing wrong with you because your EMGs are normal. And that's absolutely just not the way to interpret that test. So um, small fiber neuropathies result from damage to the peripheral nerves, which uh, affecting the small myelinated A delta and unmyelinated C fibers. So that's important because when we talk in just a few seconds about the kinds of presentations that patients have, it's going to become hopefully more obvious and clear why there are so many, there's a plethora of symptoms throughout the body, very different from person to person. These fibers um, include small somatic as well as autonomic fibers. How many of you know what POTS is? Paroxysmal, right? That's a small fiber regulatory type of issue. I cannot believe how many people um, have POTS who have severe pain they're seen by their cardiologist, and then they're told, there's nothing we can do for you. And all those people who we biopsy have small fiber neuropathy. Okay? Um, just as an aside and an anecdote, uh, um, and this is kind of crazy, I'll just go back for a second. So, five, eight years ago, I met a young woman who had intractable headache, had never been imaged before, uh, she was in her mid-30s at the time, works, has a family. We found that she had a Chiari malformation. She didn't have a Chiari malformation that was substantial enough to really warrant surgery. Um, she was insistent because her headaches were intractable and she had occasional vertigo uh, that she should go ahead and that she needed to have surgery. She found a surgeon in our area who was willing to do a, micro, to a, do a, de, a posterior fossa decompressive procedure. The Chiari malformation occurs when it's a, 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 it's a congenital problem which the, there's not, neuro, the neural tube doesn't close properly associated with folic acid deficiency. If you're, when you were pregnant, if you're a woman here who, was, who had a child, you were told to take folic acid, among other reasons. Um, and so the cerebellum drops into the brain stem and crowds, thing, crowds the uh, cervical medullary junction and can cause all kinds of havoc. She, we did CSF flow studies with MRI to show that the, it was wide open, but somebody operated on her. And no, no, well, well it's not so bad. I mean, I'm, that's not the worst part of the story. The worst part, I look very bad here, okay? I don't look good here. So um, it's not so bad, but I don't look, it's, it's not, you know, this is just how I learned about these things. And so then she, and she was complaining of vertigo and dizziness, and I remember she was going on a cruise, and I, it prescribed a scopolamine patch for her so she would be less vertiginous and, uh, on the ship, and that kind of helped a little bit. And then she got a second opinion about her Karen um, uh, malformation surgery, had the surgery, didn't get any better, got worse. But she's very proactive, and she wanted to go to Johns Hopkins because they have a special Karen malformation unit. And so this is now a couple of years later, and she goes to Hopkins, um, and she gets her insurance to pay for it because it was outside our catchment area. I'm in Albany. And while there, um, they, mo they monitor vital signs in, in their unit, and she was found to have POTS, paroxysmal orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So now it's four years into my knowing her, and she comes back, and, she's, uh, and I get these findings. And I literally said to her, I, said, I, said to, I told her I was an idiot. Um, which I guess she didn't sue me or anything like that, but I said, this is ridiculous. I should have thought about this, but of course we've been getting more experience. And I said, I think that you probably have a condition of small fiber neuropathy. It's all coming together now. Um, and I think that's why it's been so difficult to get certain things under control. And I think, fine. So I said, can I biopsy your skin? 
So of course, a week later, she had positive findings. Um, and so now we are treating her overall condition with the understanding that she has this underlying small fiber neuropathy. And it's been helpful, but it's, it, 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 I just, the point is that it really occurs in association with many other conditions. And we'll get to that in just a second. Now, thermal perception, so heat and temperature and pain are subserved by small fibers. So um, that's important to keep in mind. Enteric function is also subserved by small fibers. And large fibers are, are involved in touch, vibration, and other things. So most small fiber neuropathies occur in a length-dependent fashion, which means the longer, the, from, from distal proximal. So the longer peripheral nerves first. And that's the, been the, the, the classic teaching. I'm not sure that's 100% true, and I don't, but I don't think we have new data. I did, that was my conjecture, but with all the experience that I've developed over the last number of years, I'm not sure that's 100% true. Less common, but no longer rare, um, are non-length-dependent small fiber neuropathy uh, conditions. So that results in symptoms that can involve the face first. So we're seeing more, face or head. So we're seeing more and more people with intractable migraine who have other, who have irritable bowel syndrome, which is a small, you know, bowel motility is small fiber, who are, we're increasingly finding, have biopsy confirmation of small fiber neuropathy. So it's becoming pretty interesting. Um, they may have just truncal pain. Uh, one person I took care of um, represented to me with right upper quadrant pain only, an otherwise healthy person who was told that she needed her gallbladder out. And of course, it didn't get better. Um, and uh, again, on a whim, I wouldn't say on a whim, because of my, I guess my experience, I suggested that we evaluate it for small fiber neuropathy and she had a positive, positive findings. Um, and so this, more and more we recognize that this condition can present in a more localized way first. Unfortunately, we aren't at a point, I'm going to get to some genetic information in a little bit, but we're not at a point yet where we understand in each of these conditions why small fibers are affected and how that leads to all the pain. Small fiber neuropathy can progress to involve large fibers as well. And so, especially in a diabetic who has small fiber neuropathy and presents mostly, um, diabetics may present with loss of sensation, so numbness. They may present with significant pain, burning pain is their only, con only complaint of a neuropathic condition. Um, but when they have predominantly small fiber uh, presentations, they can go on to present later with large fiber changes. Muscle cramps may be one of the most presenting complaints of small fiber neuropathy. So what condition do you see commonly? People tell you they can't sleep at night because they're cramping and their feet move. And RLS. Guess what? RLS is highly associated with small fiber neuropathy. So I'll have a slide about that in a second. But right, so this is, a lot, I mean, these things are starting to come together. Um, epidemiologic data from the Netherlands is just a minimum incidence of small fiber neuropathy of 12 out of 100,000 people but they're around 12 out of 100,000 people, okay? So it doesn't sound like it's very prevalent. Keep that thought in mind for a second, okay? Children can also experience small fiber neuropathy. Um, and so there's a, a, a neurologist and pain specialist in, in Boston, Anne Louise Oaklander, who has studied, and I'll point to her work in just a second, has studied children and adolescents with widespread pain and has identified a subset of those individuals who have findings either on blood tests or spinal fluid assessments of an autoimmune process and has used that information to help treat target treatment for these individuals. So again, these things are starting to emerge. Um, quality of life, there's only one study that's really measured the impact specifically on small fiber neuropathy of, uh, of a quality of life and um, 265 patients were enrolled. Um, the uh, symptom in, in, impact questionnaire for small fiber neuropathy, the VAS, and a, and a short form, 36 item short form health survey was evaluated. And not surprisingly, and you've seen this throughout other parts, you know, the more severe uh, the pain, the more symptoms patients demonstrate an overall reduction in quality of life. Physical and cognitive measures were decreased, and, um, and, 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 and so you do expect that. All right, so let's talk about disorders that are associated with small fiber neuropathy. Diabetes, impaired glucose tolerance, metabolic syndrome, some degree in regulation of glucose intolerance is the most common 
known in North America reason for small fiber neuropathy? Sarcoidosis, um, not uncommon. We have now made a diagnosis of sarcoidosis in people only because they presented with small fiber neuropathy. And when I performed a lumbar puncture on them, they had elevated angiotensin converting enzymes in their CSF. At Albany Medical Center, Mark Judson has to, happens to be a pulmonologist who, um, the, uh, who has studied neurosarcoidosis and published a lot about this, so it's a nice collaboration. But the point is, I, have been re I was referring people to him to look for other symptoms of sarcoidosis. So that's, that's important to recognize. Thyroid dysfunction, HIV, B12 deficiency, thiamine deficiency, it's vitamin B1. Various chemotherapeutic agents can be associated with small fiber neuropathy as well as antiviral agents. Um, Thomas Brannigan is a neuromuscular specialist at Columbia University. He published in the journal Muscle and Nerve multiple, Thomas uh, Brannigan, I, th I hope I said that name, not Brannigan, uh, Brannigan, yes. Um, he published several years ago in Muscle and Nerve um, a review of people with celiac disease and, and they're trying to characterize their pain complaints and at least half of those individuals had small fiber neuropathy by biopsy confirmation, those who had pain. Very important to recognize. Sjogren's syndrome, just not, not chemotherapy related, but paraneoplastic syndromes, various paraproteinemias, rheumatoid arthritis, um, and it's idiopathic up, into, up to 50% in some series. Wait, there's more. Um, Guillain-Barre syndrome um, and CIDP are associated, restless leg syndrome. Hepatitis C and B, uh, lupus, amyloidosis, Fabry's disease, which is a metabolic condition associated with a specific lysosomal storage disease, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which I talked about earlier. There are hereditary, sensory, and autonomic neuropathies, and we actually published our series of patients with uh, thalamic pain, central post-stroke pain, who had no other pain complaints prior to their stroke, of any significance. Um, this was published in Pain Medicine several years ago, and um, consecutive patients had evidence of small fiber neuropathy. So again, was it, um, was it all centralized? Was, it, was, it, was the condition there and the injury to the central nervous system unmasked? Remember, the, everything that happens in the nervous system happens in a very finely tuned, regulated way. If you throw off one portion of it, does that result? I don't know, but that's what we found. Oh wait, there's more. Alcohol use, um, uh, vaccine, certain vaccines, um, the use of anti-TNF inhibitors, um, me uh, metronidazole, sorry for that ty uh, typo, certain other medicines, statins. Ah, we're going to get to the sodium channelopathies in just a second. Uh, Parkinson's disease has been associated. Uh, and for those of you, I made this point a couple of, uh, two days ago in a different talk. Um, many, you know, Parkinson's disease always thought of as a motor uh, condition. But the majority of people with Parkinson's disease have uh, severe pain, lots of pain. And this has opened up uh, Pompeii disease, another metabolic disorder. Wilson disease is a disease associated with copper metabolism issues. So we measure copper levels and cerulopasmin levels on everybody. Um, ALS has been associated, X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy, fragile X, chronic renal disease. So lots of conditions. And so we take, when we make the diagnosis on biopsy of small fiber neuropathy, we take a lot of time to try to figure this out. Better, I, we think, better to be complete so we can treat the treatable. So this is really cool stuff because it's been now possible to test for this. Um, if you remember, at any point of your training or experiences, the way that the nervous system functions in terms of electrical transmission is through influx of sodium and efflux of potassium and sodium channel propagation of signal. And we have different subtypes of sodium channels in our nervous system. And it turns out that um, NAV 1.7 is a very important specific sodium channel for nerve transmission. And there is an inactivating mutation of the, the gene that codes for NAV 1.7, that's SCN9A. This is all work, by the way, that was mostly done at Yale um, Medical School by Stephen Waxman and his colleagues. He's, he was chairman of neurology there and now does mostly basic research. But, um, and so the inactivating mutation turns into the condition that you may have seen or heard of known as congenital insensitivity to pain. And that's, so people can't feel pain. But there are gain-of-function mutations in that same gene. 
and that gain-of-function mutation may result in small fiber neuropathy. How many of you ever seen erythromelagia? Everybody we've ever biopsied has small fiber neuropathy, also associated with genetic mutations in, small, in sodium channels, and uniquely helped by sodium channel blockade, either orally, if you can get away with that, carbamazepine has been helpful, or IV lidocaine, um, etc. So, even so, erythromelagia is a special subset of a particular neuropathic pain condition associated with small fiber neuropathy. Um, there are also various mutations in other genes. So, in the trip. A1, a trip A1 or NAV 1.8, which is the, the gene for that is SEN10A and, and NAV 1.9, and also that, that, that can also lead to small fiber neuropathy. And that may be helpful as new treatments are being developed. There are now not one, not two, but three large companies that are, have interest in developing treatments for small fiber neuropathy. Two years ago, that didn't exist. So um, there's this, this, all this information, um, both clinical and basic, is leading to hopefully new treatments. So, so symptoms vary uh, from person to person. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, on any given week, we biopsy three to five people, um, and we're seeing uh, we're getting referrals um, all the time, specifically for small fiber neuropathy. Uh, and they may vary very widely in severity. You may make the diagnosis, but the person may say, I don't, I don't have this problem all the time. Um, and most of the time, people will have some vague change in sensation. If it does occur in a more distal foul, feel, uh, pattern first, they're going to feel some degree of pain or burning sensation or cold, or thermally um, uh, related sensations in their distal extremities or even just tingling. Sometimes the pain is in all the extremities, sometimes it's severe. They will experience both allodynia as well as hyperesthesia. They'll tell you that socks or bed sheets may be painful and the symptoms are almost always worse at night. Now this is the fun part in my opinion, or at least it's not fun because it's telling us something about small fiber function. Um, it is so common for people to come in, and I think one of the themes that I've seen often in this week's presentations is trying to stop siloing people's complaints and trying to think of people as a whole. And if there was, ever was a condition where this comes to, 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 to be, it's, it's small fiber neuropathy. Because so many people who have pain, they don't have pain only. They may also be experiencing autonomic dysfunction. So they may have dry eyes, dry mouth, lightheadedness with change in posture, which we do tilt table testing on everybody right now. And so a great percentage of those individuals have orthostatic changes in blood pressure and or heart rate regulation that they didn't know they had. They didn't know they had. Uh, they will present, they will tell us, they have episodes of syncope. And cardiologists uh, will come um, in, and what cardiologists are sometimes so annoying. I think cardiologists worked in, um, but that's not why I'm saying that. It happened to be that a cardiologist walked in. Um, um, but... But we just had this experience um, at Albany Med where a young 17-year-old woman um, had widespread pain complaints, also had some uh, lightheadedness and, and near syncope, had a positive tilt test, and the, EP, the, uh, the, the electrophysiologist who interpreted the, the tilt test said, oh, this can't be, uh, this, this can't be related to your pain. Complete I don't mean this in a harsh way, ignorance, lack of knowledge, that's better, um, of the connection. And so it's really important to work with our colleagues to show that somebody might present, that many of the people who might, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the bane of existence of both a neurologist and a cardiologist are people who have these vague, lightheaded and dizzy and syncope, pre-syncope, because we don't know what to do with them. And maybe there's a subset of those individuals who actually are wired in such a way that they're predisposed. Um, the people, oh my God, you start talking to um, people who, about their sweating patterns, and they'll tell you they oversweat or undersweat. Um, men may have erectile dysfunction uh, associated symptoms, GI symptoms in general, such as nausea, emesis, constipation, diarrhea, uh, urinary complaints, 
including just having to excessively urinate at night. So lots of different symptoms. And here's maybe why some of, you know, people are not initially, you would expect since small, we, when we do exams, we don't do large, we do large fiber exams. We're not doing typically exams that look at small fiber function, unless we do. How many of you do routinely do orthostatic uh, uh, vitals? No, you do. Okay, well, there's, one, there's always one in every crowd, uh, but that, that's good. Um, but this 17-year-old female um, had, had gone to her internist with her parents, and of interest was that, the, that they had to ask the person to do orthostatics, and that's what led to the discovery of the heart rate variation and the blood pressure variation. Um, so just a simple tool can, can get you going to understand what's going on. Um, but, but basically, the neurological examination is typically done, even by a neurologist, is going to be normal. Um, you may find changes in pinprick sensation. You may find excessive pinprick sensation, hyperalgesia, dry skin. So looking at the feet or the hands of somebody, they might tell you, oh, yeah, I always have dry skin. Um, but detailed history and symptom checklists in your mind or otherwise are vital, is really vital to making the diagnosis. And we'll talk about a little bit about ancillary testing. So we covered this point already, that EMGs have, are insensitive for small fiber neuropathy, um, as would be you know, even MRI neurography, uh, blood studies, only after you make the diagnosis might be helpful. Really, um, quantitative sensory testing is a tool that tests threshold to temperature and pain processing. So you could say, oh, wow, that's useful. It's usually only used in research settings, so it doesn't have great utility um, in a practical sense. Skin biopsy really has become the gold standard. Okay? There are written there are all kinds of um, uh, um, symptom inventories that can be useful. I confess, unless I'm doing a clinical trial, I don't use these in my clinical practice. I don't use this in my clinical practice. Our EMG lab could do, this is sweating. We could do this, but I'm not that, it, it doesn't really add that much to the whole story but you're free to do it if you want. So skin biopsy has become widely accepted as the way to evaluate the structure of small fur, not nerve fibers, oops, um, and, to, um, and to make the diagnosis. So depending upon the lab that you send it to, uh, you'll be asked to provide two or three three-millimeter skin punch biopsies. The procedure takes 15, 20 minutes, a half an hour if you're new to it in your practice. Um, it's not particularly expensive to do the procedure. Um, it's uh, um, the way that it's done. Uh, you can take it from anywhere in the body. I personally almost exclusively use the lower extremity because it's easier and le least painful there. And we will either take one or two samples from the thigh and one from the calf. You can do the foot, but it's much more painful there. Um, it's a standard cleaning the skin with the betadine preparation or uh, non-betadine if the person's allergic to iodine, uh, numbing the skin with um, light and local anesthetic, waiting an adequate period of time. We use a lidocaine epinephrine preparation so that's more concentrated. If somebody's sensitive to epinephrine, we won't use epinephrine. Um, and um, we take two or three samples depending upon the, the lab's requirements or request. Um, and then we cover it with a simple gauze bandage and tape. We keep the, ask the patient to keep the, um, skin, the, the wound clean and dry for uh, 24 hours before showering. But then we give them Band-Aids to use, and it heals in a week or two. Okay, of course, the risk is of bleeding, bruising, scar formation, which is uncommon, and infection. But this is typical of that kind of procedure, and it can be done very safely. Um, and so... We ex see results which are expressed as the number of intraepidermal fibers per millimeter, and the sensitivity increases. Is and, and the sensitivity and the specificity are pretty high for this technique. So not a lot of false negatives, not a lot of not a false false positives. Okay. Um, the intraepidermal nerve fibers themselves are unmyelinated sensory endings that arise from the subpapillary portion of the dermis. They actually widely express a lot of different receptors, including TRPV1 receptors, so that they are really, this TRPV1 receptor, what, what commonly found chemical turns this on? What? 
Exactly. So that's your heat and temperature receptor. That's why you eat chili pepper. That's what's being turned on. So actually, when you use capsaicin, it's not blocking anything. It's turning it on. So they widely express trip V1 receptors. So they are really distal nociceptors. Um, and so um, uh, the, there's a speci- specific staining technique using a PGP 9.5, uh, which is how they, the number of neurofibers are counted using those antibodies. Um, in general, the epidermal neurofiber density decreases with age um, and small fiber neuropathy, um, and it decreases with age in general. Um, so, okay. So now we also see loss of skin nerve fibers in post-herpetic neuralgia, and this is work done by Anne Louise Oaklander in a, a different time period. Um, we can also use cor- corneal confocal microscopy. And there's actually kind of a debate out there right now as whether or not if you have this in your practice, and some centers do, you can see, um, because CCM or corneal confocal microscopy visualizes C fibers originating from the trigeminal nerve that travel to the Bowman's membrane of the cornea, and software can quantify the corneal nerve fiber density its tortuosity, branch density, and fiber length. And there are people, international debates going on right now is whether or not this can supplant the use of a skin biopsy and avoid um, doing bi- having to do a painful procedure. But the other point that should be made is if people have lower extremity complaints, the fact that you could use a corneal test demonstrates and emphasizes this is not just a problem here, it's a widespread problem. And that's another important point. Um, quantitative sensory, uh, micro there are, other, there are other ways of doing this that are not done in clinical practice, but I just wanted to be um, uh, complete. Now, what blood test might you order? Well, you might want to order thyroid functions. Certainly, we order hemoglobin A1Cs and fasting blood sugars in everybody, CBCs, hepatic profile, thiamine level B12, a C-reactive protein, HIV, Lyme, uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, uh, sed rate ANA, uh, anti-ENA, ANCA, anti-gliadin, so celiac, RF, um, serum ACE levels. Um, we don't usually do chest x-rays unless we get abnormal ACE levels. Uh, different tumor markers I don't routinely do. Uh, we get the LDH in comprehensive chemical profile. If we have high suspicion for a paraneoplastic condition, we may do some of these paraneoplastic markers. We may do urine and blood toxicology to be complete, review drug history. If you suspect a hereditary cause, alpha-galactosidase um, A is the enzyme that's abnormal in Febreze disease. Uh, we may do genetic testing. There are commercial laboratories now available to do genetic testing for SCN9A or SCN10A genetic abnormalities. And we do routinely do lumbar punctures on people because as I'm, I'm going to build up to right now, when it comes to treatment, there are non-specific ways of taking care of neuropathic pain, um, which include many medical approaches and intravenous infusions. But there's, there is emerging a sense that if you identify an uh, immune-mediated mechanism, then using immune-targeted therapies may be helpful. And so we have found um, that not an insignificant number of people may have elevated proteins in their spinal fluid, elevated myelin basic protein, sometimes elevated IgG indexes. I mentioned earlier that we picked up on some people who have elevated um, angiotensin converting enzyme levels in their spinal fluid, leading to diagnosis of sarcoidosis, getting in that back door instead of through pulmonary. Um, so we um, can do this in our institution under uh, x-ray guidance with sedation by an interventional radiologist. I can do it if the patient prefers to be up. Um, and we use a special needle, needle called a GERTIE needle, G-E-R-T-I-E needle, which is a blunt needle because it's the shearing force of the dura that causes the risk of uh, post-LP headaches. So the typical spinal needle actually is very sharp and has a greater likelihood of causing post-LP symptoms. The Gertie needle has an introducer into the skin, but once you get past a certain ligament, you, the blunt needle and the end of the shaft, act, the, the, the hole, the fluid collection is in the shaft and not in the end. And so you're bluntly going in through the dura, and that has an unbelievably lower likelihood 
of post-LP headaches. So if you ever do LPs in your practice or, other, or otherwise, um, we try to use a gurney needle if you can, um, because once we started using those, we almost never have post-LP headaches. Um, so this is important to recognize because we have started to really, um, uh, there's even more information about these sodium channel genetic issues. So again, just to remind us, sodium channel 1.7 and NAV 1.8 gain of function mutations are noted in inherited erythromelagia, which everyone I've ever biopsied has small fibromyopathy changes. NAV 1.7 has been found to be abnormal. Uh, there's been a genetic mutation in what's a condition known as paroxysmal extreme pain disorder. Now, this is how it's described. And I've never seen somebody who presented with this condition, but I'm wondering if this is really just another variant of small fibromyopathy where they have paroxysms of rectal, ocular, submandibular pain with flushing and possible autonomic dysfunction. Um, and multiple gain-of-function mutations have been identified for that. So but I don't know of any bio- skin biopsy fi- um, studies in that group. And so that's important. All right, so now we're going to kind of switch to actually talking about treatment. I mean, no disrespect to anyone who takes care of people. I, mean, I take care of people with mental illness. This is not to be talking about um, suicide in any way. The purpose of this slide is to show that we are, have had discouraging data with the use of antidepressants for the management of small fibroneuropathy pain, as well as other treatments. So this is hopefully not going to be one in um, here's a rat that's been involved in an antidepressant trial and the investigators come back and find out that it's hanged itself. So it's not quite as bad as that, but it's not as, um, it's not as if we have a slam dunk yet, but we're getting better. Um, here's another way of expressing the, 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 the reality of taking care of somebody with painful small fiber neuropathy. Um, this is a positive study. Uh, Dr. Bachkonia was actually teach, was teaching in a course here today, I believe, um, was the first author here many, oh, 20 years ago at this point. Um, and this was considered a very positive study because gabapentin-treated group B placebo. There was about a 30% response rate, 30% reduction in pain, rather. So the mean pain intensity levels, um, um, uh, the take-home message from all this, though, is that um, at the end of the study, even though there was a statistically significant difference in placebo versus gabapentin, in favor of gabapentin, most of the patients still had enough pain in the gabapentin group to re-enter the study at the end, because you had to have a minimum amount of pain. And isn't that what we see all the time with single you know, unimodality? Patients come back and say, I'm better, but I'm still in pain. And that's what all these kinds, so that's, what, that's not quite as bad as that, but it's still pretty bad. So treat the treatable. You know, we have found people, we have diagnosed their diabetes. So of course you're gonna try to, they never knew they had diabetes, they come back with hemoglobin A1Cs of 6.2, 6.1, they may not have to be treated, but they have to be followed. Treat the diabetes. If an underlying cause, so, so, so in general, treat the underlying cause. If an underlying cause can be determined, that may help to lessen the symptoms. Really few studies, certainly no guidelines, have yet examined medical treatment of pain associated with small fiber neuropathy. But in one study in small fiber neuropathy, uh, both gabapentin and tramadol, and the two of them together were found to be effective. These are just general guidelines for, small, for neuropathic pain. Um, they, of course, usually use opioids as second-line drugs, although the international guidelines do realize that opioids can be used in some circumstances as first-line therapy when others are contraindicated or not available. Um, the Canadian guidelines specifically um, put methadone down as fourth-line fourth line because of their, its particular um, safety issues. Um, but here comes some of the more emerging and interesting uh, further interesting information. Intravenous gamma globulin or IVIG is used in the neurological world for many conditions. In the pain world, not as much, but certainly it's used for various autoimmune-mediated neuropathies, some of which are not painful, myasthenia gravis, which is a neuromuscular disorder a, a condition where it's an antibody directed towards the acetylcholine receptor, uh, multiple sclerosis, some people are treated with IVIG. And... Um, we have only preliminary data to support the potential benefit of IVIG as a treatment of small fiber neuropathy. Um, in one report, there were three patients who were treated with sarcoidosis who had severe pain, had small fiber neuropathy, and signs of dysautonomia. 
Every patient in the study in this review had biopsy-proven small fiber neuropathy. They had failed to respond to conventional analgesic approach. And then at a dose of 2 grams per kilogram, um, followed by subsequent treatments of half that dose at regular intervals, uh, usually four to six-week intervals, sometimes eight weeks, they had dramatic resolution of their pain and autonomic symptoms. A larger study hasn't been done. There is one going on in, in the Netherlands right now. Um, in the second study, um, um, there was a, a, a case report of uh, use of this in Sjogren syndrome, same dose, two, gra- two grams per kilogram. Um, Anne-Louise Oaklander, I mentioned this earlier, she has looked at uh, treating juvenile onset unexplained widespread pain associated with small fiber neuropathy, um, treated with IVIG in 15 patients, um, at least three times at a dose of two, gr- two grams per kilogram per month, and almost shy of two-thirds, 62%, demonstrated significant improvement. In another study, 46 patients with small fiber neuropathy associated with dysautonomia were treated with one or more IBIG treatments. For, their pa- for patients with um, uh, pain intensity starting at three or greater and with significant dysautonomia, the treatment was helpful. This is a more recent publication um, from Dr. Oaklander's group in which they looked at 55 patients of various ages who had apparently autoimmune small fiber neuropathy. They defined this as having some marker that demonstrated a possible auto or apparently autoimmune condition. They treated people for an average of 28 plus or minus, it was a large empty deviation, so it was a widespread uh, range of IVI treatment duration. But there were improvements noted in autonomic function testing, which was done formally, pain reduction and sweat production, and 16% of people were considered in remission after multiple treatments. Now, let's switch gears a little bit, some more exciting things. Um, how many of you see fibromyalgia patients? How many of those patients are always biopsied for small fiber neuropathy? They all should be. The, oh, there's overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence that up to 50% of people in multiple, um, well, you, I wouldn't say they should be, that you should consider it. Um, there's overwhelming evidence that approximately 50% of patients who've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia in different international studies, when they have been biopsied, they have findings consistent with small fiber neuropathy. I don't know what that means. Um, if you remember, some of you have been to pain week before, a couple of years ago, we had a little bit of a debate between myself and Dan Claw, who is a genius um, and wonderful person, has done an amazing things with fibromyalgia research, but he's very much a believer based upon lots of, you know, his review of evidence in his own studies that all fibromyalgia is centralized. And I have just asked, I just wrote an editorial about this that's going to be published um, soon. Um, I, have, I have just asked people to, rem- that to, in, to um, respect the fact that we have 50, about 50% of people have small fiber neuropathy changes. And we don't know what that means yet. So certainly everything always has to be centralized because it's your brain that experiences everything. But it doesn't mean that's where the problem occurred. And in fact, we showed in a study um, that was published three, four years ago, and our work was on the front cover of the journal Pain Medicine, that when we we biopsy the skin, this area of the skin, it's it's called glabrous skin. It's rich in uh, lots of small fibers and... and, um, um, uh, 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 arteri- uh, uh, areas of, of, of the skin here that are rich in, AV, in, in, in thermal and uh, skin, skin temperature regulation. And they were hyper-innervated in all patients with fibromyalgia compared with controls. So what if there's a subset of people who have, have American College of Rheumatology criteria uh, met fibromyalgia-type symptoms but that subset is experiencing that because they have an abnormal, their peripheral nervous system is just telling them it's an abnormal thermostat. They're being told that they're hyper, they're hyper innervated, so they're being, their brain is being told what it's being told. I don't know. Um, but that's something I think we should at least think about. Um, and um, it really disturbed me. It's not about me, but it disturbed me when. Um, a recently published study in pain looking at the combination of duloxetine and pregabalin versus either alone in combination therapy for people with fibromyalgia. It was just published 
and I, I, did, I reviewed it, and I was disturbed that the editor didn't pick up on my concerns, didn't at least comment upon these recent findings to say at least we don't know if we may have been able to better characterize who would respond if we did an analysis of who had small fiber neuropathy associated fibromyalgia and who didn't. So I think that you know, if you want to get better and better at what we do, we have these nuances are not such nuances. Um, this is a study that was done by Anne Louise Oaklander, just to give you some of the uh, 27 patients with fibromyalgia who satisfied the ACR criteria were compared to 30 matched controls. Take home message here, 41% of skin biopsies for fibromyalgia subjects compared to 3% of controls were diagnostic for small fiber neuropathy. This is a, this is a study done in Germany. Um, and take home message here as well as 25 patients compared to controls and 10 depressed patients. And um, the, 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 the uh, skin biopsy findings in the fibromyalgia patients demonstrated that total and regenerating intraepidermal nerve fibers um, uh, densities in the lower leg and upper thigh were reduced in patients with fibromyalgia compared with controls. Uh, this is a retrospect. Oh, th- this is something that was just published two months ago, three months ago. Um, remember I said that the that SWIT, that Netherlands study, 12 out of 100,000? So what we did... Um, we just hypothesized. We didn't know. We wondered, how many of you take care of people with pelvic pain, right? There's been a bunch of pelvic pain talks here. And um, we hypothesized that what if, you know, is it really endometriosis related? Is it really painful bladder syndrome, also known as interstitial cystitis? Or might be there an underlying wiring issue? And so we just, we just got approval by the IRB to offer skin biopsies to people who are being screened and taken care of at the um, Albany Medical Center, Pelvic Health Center. Um, comorbid conditions in this group included GERD. That's a, a motility, that's a, that's a small fiber issue. Migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, endometriosis, of course, interstitial cystitis, lots of uh, conditions. And 64% of our cohort had biopsy findings consistent with small fiber neuropathy. Somebody smile. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, I, I didn't make this up. Um, and so, so, of course, now we're collecting prospective data, but that's really pretty interesting. These are people who are miserable, and have, uh, maybe their diagnosis needs to be, maybe we need to be broader about how we look at these things. Um, this is um, a book. Uh, Todd Levine and David Saperstein are neurologists who... Um, Worked very much in the small. They were the ones who did the um, open label. They did an open label uh, study um, uh, of patients with fibromyalgia and small fibromyalgia. That's my name. Uh, Chris Gibbons is a, a researcher and clinician neurologist at Harvard. The rest are from either University of Minnesota or University of Kansas. And we wrote published this book several years ago um, called "Small Nerves, Big Problems" as a, the only patient handbook for small fibromyalgia. So this is available. We don't make any money on it. It's available online. Uh, and so this is just a resource that may be helpful. You like this cover? My daughter did it. She's 17. Uh, <laughs> she's an artist, though. Anyway, that was, that was not TME a credit for, you know, whatever. Uh, so anyway, so, <laughs> um, so thanks for listening. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Um, many, this is a, not an uncommon problem. We're still learning about it, but I wouldn't ignore it, and we have a lot of treatments to look forward to. Thanks so much.